from HerbMentor.com, this is Herb Mentor Radio. You're listening to Herb Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com. I'm John Gallagher. Today we welcome back Jim McDonald to Herb Mentor Radio for a special edition. Jim's classes are based in Michigan, and you can learn about his courses and other work on his website, herbcraft.org.org. Herbcraft.org has wonderful articles and is an excellent resource. So, Jim, welcome back to Herb Mentor Radio. Hey, how are you doing? Doing excellent. Uh, holidays are coming around, and I was wondering what the heck I was going to do, uh, who I was going to interview in December. Then I got this. The way it usually works is then I get an email, and that usually from somebody, and that usually dictates where I'm going to go with it. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> right. I was very excited because you were uh, willing to share with us something that you do talk about from time to time on our forum and whatnot. And that, that's a holistic, energetic treatment of fevers. And um, that can be really confusing to some folks, the whole thing about fevers and, and, and what the energetics and how to treat it and all that. So I'm excited that you're willing to share your wisdom with us. So what do you got for us? Well, you know, the um, one of the things around here, because there's a couple uh, parenting groups that I'm a part of, and, you know, a, a lot of people, they, they're totally down with the idea that, yes, okay, a fever is a good thing. You don't want to suppress it. Mm-hmm. But they don't really necessarily know how to work with it. And, um, you know, fevers, it's not that, like, oh, okay, they have a fever. That's no big deal. It's an, you know, it's an immune response. You don't have to do anything with it. Because a lot of times you do. You have to manage it. And to, to manage it, you have to really understand what the body's trying to do. And so, you know, just like with, with anything else, you know, if, if you want to have a more vitalist approach mm-hmm. um, to using herbs, you know, more holistic approach, you're not just using herbs to treat a fever, using herbs to support the body and what the body wants to do. Because you can use herbs allopathically, just like you can use medicines allopathically. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the, the main thing is to think like, well, you know, what is going on with the fever? And, um, one of the things that you know people don't always recognize is that all the symptoms that they get, you know, whether it's their runny nose or their cough or their sore, achy muscles um, or their fever when they get sick, those are all immune responses. You know, hmm. we think about them as like, oh, I'm sick, I have a fever. I'm sick, I have a cough. I'm sick, I have this. But these yeah. are all immune responses. And so, if you take, you know, let's say you have a runny nose and you take a whole bunch of golden seal and your runny nose stops. Um, well, you just, you know, if you used the golden seal allopathically and you suppressed your runny nose and that's not really making your cold go away. It's sort of like, you know, that, that mucus that you have is like, you know, if, if invaders or, you know, evil orcs are trying to get into the castle and someone's <laughs> up at the top of the battlements and they, they pour some tar in, you know, mm-hmm. and the tar mucks up the, the, the guy and he falls down, um, you know, if you dry it up with golden seal, you go to pour that tar and it's all dried out in the can. And it's like, oh, no, you know, I can't do that. So with, with fevers, it's the same thing. The fever is an immune response. And um, really, it's, it's an important part of the immune system because it's not the part that gets the most play. You know, if, if you learn about herbs from, you know, advertising, which is really initially where a lot of people get their information, you know, some kind of product-oriented advertising that, that simplifies an herb down, like, oh, echinacea stimulates the immune system, or golden seal is a natural antibiotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the part of the immune system that it always gets the focus is the germ theory part of it, like um, herbs that stimulate white blood cell production, and those white blood cells go around the body, and they directly kill germs, you know? So it's like increasing the police force of the body. Right. Or 
herbal antibiotics or herbal antimicrobials or herbal antifungals or anti, you know, like the whole, anything with the word anti in front of it. Right. You know, um, it's referring to basically you have something, uh, a germ in you that's making you sick. You take this herb and it kills the germ, you know, in a direct, you know, really American kind of movie, you know, thing, runs around, chases after him, gets the bad guy. <laughs> and and then you're betty, um, better. But the the fever response is a lot more subtle. It's it's a part of the immune system, but it's it's more ruled by the endocrine system. Okay. And it doesn't get as much play, which is interesting because in traditional herbalism, these are the most important herbs to use. Right. You know, um, Native Americans did not use echinacea for colds and flus. What did know? they use it for? They mainly used it for snake bites uh-huh. uh, and for poisoning and for things like gangrene, you know, mm-hmm. so like septic infection. So there was an infection element, but more like a septic infection. Um, I would say that they would use it for like eruptive fevers. So someone had like, you know, chicken pox or smallpox or, mm-hmm. you know, got some kind of septic infection sort of welling up interruptions on the skin. They would use it in that. But for run-of-the-mill influenza, they didn't use it for that. It wasn't until the, I think the Germans started doing research on it and figured out that it stimulated white blood cell production, that it got that um, use sort of in, in, into its, uh, its profile, and okay. it will never go away. Um, they used the same thing that Europeans used, the same thing that um, South American Indians used, the same things that uh, African you know, indigenous people used, the same thing that European and Asian people used, right. which was the, the aromatic diaphoretic herbs, you know, like elderflower tea, mint tea, catnip tea, you know, that, yeah, there are oils in there that are antimicrobial, but the main way that they work is by supporting body systems. And when you have a fever, what's happening is, you know, let's say that, you know, some little microbe gets into your body. Well, you know, a signal gets sent to the hypothalamus that says, you know, kind of like intruder alert, intruder (laughs) alert. Right, right, And hypothalamus, raises the temperature of the body. Mm. And it does that to make the body inhospitable to that um, microorganism so they can't live there. Mm. And the analogy that I always, because I love analogies, just adore them. Mm. Um, The analogy that I always do here is like, you know, let's say that you're hanging out um, with your family and then, you know, um, knock at the door and it's like an old friend of yours from college or high school or it's a sibling or a parent or an in-law or something, and you like them and all that, but you don't really want them staying with you for a long time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so rather than just like you know, getting a baseball bat out and saying "get out of my house" and start whacking at them, you know, that's the, the white blood <laughs> approach to get things out of your house. But, but you might <laughs> like to do that or something. <laughs> right, right, right. We're going to be a little bit more subtle. You know, you're like, hmm, well, okay, and you go to the thermostat and you dial it up to like 103, 104 degrees. Okay. All of a sudden, you know, whoever this is that's, that's staying with you and causing you grief starts to get really uncomfortable. And then they're either going to pass out and keel over from heat or they're going to, you know, leave the body in some way um, because it's not a sustainable environment for them, okay? So that's what's going on when your body's generating that temperature of a fever. Um, influenza virus dies, I mean, dies mm-hmm. at... Um, 99 to 100 degrees in the lungs, which are a little bit cooler than the rest of the body because they're cooled by the air that you're breathing in. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, so without any white blood cells touching them. So if you do what most people do when they're sick and they have a fever, which is 
take Tylenol or Motrin or Advil or um, aspirin to lower the fever because you think that the number of the fever, you know, the temperature is, is too high, and you lower it be, below that level, you're directly suppressing the immune system. Mm. I mean, there would be no difference um, between that and, like, taking a drug to prevent you from making white blood cells. And ironically, white blood cells function more efficiently at elevated temperatures, okay? So th this really is a vital response. Um, and, you know, so you, you raise the temperature in your house. Um, your house guests, you know, pass out, and you, you know, kind of shift them out of the house to get rid of them. And then what do you do to uh, cool the house down? You know, you, of course, you turn the thermostat back down, but it's going to take a while to cool down. So what, what makes sense as a response to cool it down a lot quicker? Oh, uh, open the windows? Yes. Okay. And that's what happens when the pores open up. And it lets that heat get out, you know, so that you actually do, you know, help with the temperature when the fever response is doing it. But you don't do it by suppressing it. You do it by letting the process complete. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, so that's the really important aspect of it is that it's so important to let that process complete because that is a vital immune function. And... You know, I don't know that this is documented anywhere, and maybe it's just my supposition, but I think that if you have someone um, who from childhood, every time they get a fever, you give them something that brings the fever down, you give them something that brings the fever down, you give them something that brings the fever down, you run the potential that the body's eventually going to learn, like, why even bother going into that response? Mm -hmm. You know? Right, right. I'm never allowed to complete it. And now that really will weaken the um, immune response and make that person more susceptible. You know, so it's the environmental defenses of making the body inhospitable to infection uh, that the fever is controlling. And from a vitalist perspective, what we want to do is we want to look at the qualitative nature of what the body's doing and assist it if it gets hung up in a certain area. Okay. So um, one of the things that is perpetually brought up is. But what if the temperature gets too high? Right, because and, right, cause you have a little kid, you're freaked out, it's the middle of the night, the totally. temperature is 104, and you're like, well, this person says that I should do this, and this person says that it's okay, and, you know, you're, like, freaking out. Yes, absolutely. And um, now I personally, myself, um, and I'm not advocating this, but I personally, myself, I've never taken my kids' temperatures, ever. Um, what I do I say, look at them, you know, because I'm not treating the number on the thermometer. I'm treating them. And I've seen my kids um, have low fevers and look like crap, and I've seen them have high fevers and be running around the house playing, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm more concerned when they look like crap than when they're, you know, looking like they're, you know, doing relatively okay. I, certainly running around the house when you have a fever isn't the greatest therapeutic strategy, but mm -hmm. it, it shows you that they're not feeling awful, you know. Um, but I finally found, um, by accident actually, um, this, this little document that's on children's hospital websites all over the country. And you can post a link of it. I sent you a link of it. Yeah, and I'll put the link uh, on the page where this um, is hosted on, urban, on urbenter.com. Yeah, it says myths about fever, okay? Mm -hmm. And you've got to figure that if this is on a children's hospital, this is not radical alternative medicine contrary to contrarianism, you know, saying like, oh, well, they say this, well, we say this. This is something that um, 
is posted because the people of the hospital are constantly having freaked out parents bring their kids in for things that they're better off staying at home for. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to read a few of these. Um, funny, it, when I read through this, it's like, oh my God, you would think with this on their website that the treatment they would get once they get into the hospital would be sane, but I'm not sure if it necessarily correlates. <laughs> uh, myth, all fevers are bad for children. Fact. Fevers turn on the body's immune system. Fevers are one of the body's protective mechanisms, and most fevers are good for children to help the body fight infection. Totally same page. Um, Myth, fevers cause brain damage, or fevers above 104 degrees are dangerous. Fact, fevers with infections don't cause brain damage. Only body temperatures above 108 can cause brain damage, and fevers only go up this high with high environmental temperatures, like being confined in a closed car. Okay? Now, that's really pertinent because that's one of the things that parents especially are freaked out about. You know, I let the fever get up too high and it's going to cause neurological damage. Okay, and this is clearly saying that doesn't happen. Um, Myth, anyone can have a febrile seizure. Fact, only 4% of children can have a febrile seizure. Um, Myth, febrile seizures are harmful. Febrile seizures are scary to watch, but they usually stop within five minutes and they cause no permanent harm. Okay. Uh, myth, all fevers need to be treated with fever medicine. Fact, fevers only need to be treated if they cause discomfort. Um, without treatment, fevers will go higher. Fact, wrong. Fevers uh, from infection top out at 105 or 106 due to a thermostat in the brain. Um, yes. Uh, if a fever doesn't come down, the cause is serious. Fevers that don't respond to medicine can be caused by viruses, bacteria. It doesn't relate to the seriousness of the infection. This is my favorite. Actually, I mean, it's one of the, when you get really nerdy about stuff like this, you're like, right. you have your favorite fear missing fact. <laughs> Myth, if the fever is high, the cause is serious. Fact, if your child looks very sick, sick the cause is fever is very serious. You know, um, Myth, the exact number of the temperature is very important. Fact, how your child looks is what's important. You know, so again, this is a children's hospital website. And I've seen this same document on several different hospital websites. <coughs> and it's, um, it's just a really good reality check to have mm-hmm. that on hand. You know, when you're feeling like, oh, my God, this fever is too high. I better bring it down. Um, they're not going to have, the temperature's not related to them having a fibro seizure. It's not really going to give them brain damage. Um, what matters the most is that you look at how they're doing and deal with that. Really, the main dangers that are associated with um, fevers or influenza is that uh, you can get dehydration, mm-hmm. and that's very serious. And with anyone who has a child, if they think their child has dehydration, I usually tell them, that's the time to you know go to the hospital, especially if it's a small child. Dehydration can progress rapidly in small children or in the elderly or really frail people, and it's not the right time to be googling you know how to do a catnip enema or something like that. Right. <laughs> Which not to say that I don't think that that stuff works or that you know I wouldn't do it, but it's not the right time to be trying to figure out how to do something right. when your child is very sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other. Uh, thing that is, is a very common cause of serious illness or, or death associated with fevers or influenza is like secondary bacterial infections like pneumonia. It's not the fever itself, you know. Um, it's not the temperature. It's not the number. So that shouldn't be the thing that people freak out about. Um, it, it would have been the case, uh, 
and for some people it still is, but um, back in the time when the eclectics and the physiomedicals were practicing, they might look at someone who had a 99 degree fever and be concerned about that person more than someone with 104 fever, 105 fever, because Why is they that? would say, well, they would say, now, what's going on here that the body's vital force can't muster up a better immune response? Hmm. You know, hmm. if you had someone, if you had someone who had influenza and they can't get the temperature high enough to get it to where the fever will start to kill the influenza, it makes it harder on the other part of the immune system, the white blood cell part, because now it has to do all the work itself okay. rather than letting those environmental defenses, you know, take care of uh, the brunt of them. Uh, so, so that's a really important thing to just wrap your head around and not be uh, obsessed by. Um, one of the things that I think is also uh, very important is that, um, especially since there's a lot of people um, who are into natural medicine and they don't do vaccinations, they you know try not to do conventional medicines. Um, if you're not going to do that stuff, it's not really like suitable in in, in my the way that I think to just uh, say, well, I'm just going to use herbs to treat their fever. If you don't know how to do that, if you don't sort of understand the way that fevers work and how to do differentiation, which is, um, you know, ever since the swine flu and the bird flu before that, um, I get tons of email and it says, like, what herbs are you planning on using for the swine flu? And perennially, my answer is, I won't know until I see a person who has it. Right. Because I, I don't, I'm not treating just the flu. Now, granted, I would probably give anyone elderberry because elderberry is just really broadly acting. Mm. But, you know, different people manifest their symptoms uh, entirely differently. And so that's the, the thing that you want to work with. You want to work with the, the person with the condition, not just the condition in isolation of the person who has it. Okay. Uh, otherwise, you're working on a more allopathic um, mind state. So the, there's a, so many different ways that you can break apart um, how you assess a person and a condition and how you use herbs. Right. And the, the way that I do it is... So just so I go, like, it's essentially like okay. a person's going to have a... The, the, have a fever when, and we're really probably concerned here more like a fever related to a flu, and of course they can have you know fevers related to other types of infections too, right? But are we mostly talking about fevers related to flus or what? Yeah, just, yeah, mostly related to influenza. So, okay. so I wouldn't necessarily, um, oh, like if someone had you know fever associated with mastitis, okay, mm-hmm. so a different kind of infection or fever associated with a kidney infection. Mm-hmm. Um, kidney infection actually. Yeah, I'd go to the hospital for that. Right. You can still use herbs, but go to the hospital for a kidney infection. And, uh-huh. um, you know, don't let that progress. Okay. Uh, um, but this is m- more for like, you know, uh, colds and flus and, and your run-of-the-mill. We're in f- flu season. Um, a good number of people are going to end up with fevers, whether they're healthy or not. Mm-hmm. Um, if you get sick, that doesn't mean that you failed. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you're not good at what you do. It doesn't mean that herbs don't work, you know. Um, if If healthy people didn't get sick, we wouldn't have herbalism, you know. We have herbalism because everyone gets sick. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, when I hear stories about people who say, like, oh, well, I heard from someone who said they started using herbs and they haven't been sick in the last 30 years, um, <laughs> I usually want to respond with something, and sometimes I do. Or like, oh, yeah, that's like, you know, I, my wife and I love each other so much that we've never gotten into an argument, you know. <laughs> just, it's unrealistic right, right. Uh, that that's the case. Right. Um, but I, I basically use um, sort of a modified physiomedical approach 
And the physiomedicalists were herbalist, uh, school of herbalism uh, in the 1800s to the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. Um, they sort of grew out of the Thompsonian school of herbal medicine. And they were more plant-oriented than the eclectics, who also used some isolated chemicals and some minerals and glandulars. Mm-hmm. And the physiomedicalists never use anything they consider toxic. You know, the eclectics would say, well, you know, you can use toxic herbs like gelsemium. You just use them in really small doses and in certain s- situations. The physiomedicalists, as a rule, thought if something's toxic, it's toxic no matter what. You okay, know? makes sense. So they didn't like homeopathics at all. They would say, you know, no, you know, homeopathic belladonna is toxic because belladonna is toxic. Uh, one of the reasons I think that um, all the other schools of medicine uh, fell in the face of the allopathic medicine um, was that they couldn't bond together against a common, you know, uh, disruptive force, mm-hmm. that they, they all hated each other. You know, the eclectics didn't like the homeopaths, the allopaths, and the physiomedicalists didn't like the homeopaths or the allopaths or the eclectics, and the homeopaths thought everyone was doing something wrong, you know. And so if you read a lot of these books in the introductions, you, they'll take time out to sort of jab and poke at all the other, you know, schools of medicine, you know. I know, in Cook's Physiomedical um, Dispensatory, which is another uh, wonderful book, one of those ones that make you realize that you're turning into an herb nerd uh, when you're reading the introduction of it. Um, <laughs> he, he makes the comment that uh, the only um, useful things that are found in the um, eclectic school of medicine are the ones that they appropriated from the physiomedicalists without giving any credit for. Mm-hmm. You know, So they, they were all like that. But the physiomedicalists... Um, Basically, they they looked at two broad patterns um, that were at play, and they would say, um, if a person has a fever and they're hung up in a part of it, does the person need stimulation, or they need something that's going to relax them? Okay, and it's really important because the first thing that people do when they hear those words is they you know put stimulating on one end of the polarity, and relaxing at the other end of the polarity. Right, right. The first important thing to do that is, is not to think about them as opposites, okay? Hard, um, hard, hard to do. Isn't it is hard to do, okay? Yeah. So, but a, a really good way to do this, okay? So this is like an exercise for anyone listening right now. Right. You, you take your hands and you vigorously scratch your head. Okay, I'm going to do okay. my, my headset, my pick it up. Okay, <laughs> right, right. It. So what good. you'll notice is that you feel this sense of stimulation, yeah. from the scratching, right? Uh-huh. And yet the tension that you're holding in those almost imperceptible muscles all over your skull is relaxed, okay? Mm. So you have both things happening at one time, stimulation and relaxation. A good vigorous massage is stimulating and relaxing at the same time, okay? okay. So they're not opposites um, that are sort of like uh, fighting against each other. And it's not um, something that, that needs to be reconciled. They're both uh, two forces working towards the common end. So, in, in so, so you're, you're you're trying to look to determine. You're tra- you're looking at the fever, and you're looking at some patterns in the fever to determine whether it needs these stimulating or relaxing. Right, right. Needs a, a stimulating or relaxing influence. Okay. Okay. So, um, and the plants we use for these uh, conditions are called diaphoretics. Okay. And if you look in any herb book. There's usually like this two-sentence definition that says something to the effect of diaphoretics are herbs that help to make people sweat and are used in treating fevers. And that definition is pretty okay for two sentences, but it's not okay to really understand what those plants are doing. Um, A diaphoretic plant is a plant that is useful for treating colds, flus, and fevers, so even common colds too, um, 
and it does so by directing the circulation of the body and by uh, working with the ventilation of the body, okay? okay? So like what the pores are doing. And sometimes you can use diaphoretic herbs and they'll actually stop sweating and wow. they're still diaphoretic, okay? So you think about like, hopefully you've never had this happen to yourself, but a lot of people have or have seen it. Um, someone who really early in the fever, they're like cold and clammy and they're sure. sweating. And Okay. The circulation's not getting out to the surface, but their periphery is open and there's sweat leaking out all over. That person is dehydrating, okay? So you need to like close up the pores in that situation because it's not a therapeutic sweating, it's just losing fluid from weakness, okay? So um, you can break the class of diaphoretics down into two, cat two broad categories. It's weird. the stimulating diaphoretics and the relaxing diaphoretics. And what the stimulating ones do, they're the easiest ones for people to figure out. They're herbs that um, direct the circulation out from the core to the periphery, okay? And the reason they're so easy for people to figure out because you can feel them working. These are all of our common kitchen spices, okay? Ginger, cayenne, clove, um, cardamom, cinnamon, cinnamon yeah. pepper, yeah. You know, so all of these herbs, that you take them and you feel that flush, that warm flush. They're stimulating peripheral circulation. And um, the relaxing herbs are herbs that help with tension in the body that is inhibiting that outward circulation, okay? So you can think like if you have shivers, if you're curled up in a fetal ball, mm -hmm. if you are like just really, really tense and your neck is tense and your shoulders are tense and your whole body hurts and you're all tight, okay? All with your muscle tension comes to constriction of the blood vessels in the body. So your body's trying to get that good outward circulation, but the tension is inhibiting it. So you relax that tension, and you get good peripheral circulation out to the surface, okay? That's the thing that we want to see happening in a fever, is good circulation from the core out to the periphery. Um, so I guess I'm, I guess at this point, I'm just some more clarification and just understanding a little more. So, okay, we have someone, we're looking at them, and we're first determining what kind of fever it is before we look at stimulating or relaxing. Well, you look at the person. Okay. Again, you what are we looking for? And you say the broad categories. Okay. Um, and then you, you, you start with broad categories and you work your way down to finer points. Okay. Right. So you look at the person and you say, do they need to be stimulated? Do they need to rela be relaxed? Or do they need both? And how Someone would I know Someone who needs to be stimulated um, is going to be more pale looking because okay. there's not good outward circulation to the surface, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to be cool to the touch. And they're going to be like sort of lax on the bed, you know. So they look like they need stimulation. They're cool. They're pale. That means that there's not good blood out to the surface. And they're sort of like dead weight on the bed. And I'm not talking dead weight dehydration, you know, about the keel, uh, but, but just sort of like weak. They need stimulation. Okay. okay. Someone who is like bright red, like a fire hydrant, mm -hmm. and you go to put your hand on their head and you get about four feet away from them and you can feel the heat radiating off of them. Yeah. They don't need warming spices to stimulate their outward circulation. They've got, you know, that, that's, that part of the process is already happening great. Okay. All right. So you, you don't need to use the warming, stimulating spices on the person who's glowing red and who is radiating heat around them like, you know, sweat lodge rocks. Mm -hmm. 
um, because they've already got that. They don't need to be stimulated. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is that pretty clear? Yes, that is. Thank you. For, for the relaxing thing, you look basically at their state of tension. If the person is, again, if they're curled up fetal, um, you know, if they're holding a lot of tension in their gut and they can't straighten out. If they're really restless and fidgety in bed and agitated, you know, so like they lay and they keep fussing their pillow around or they, you know, they're the kind of, you know, sort of type A person that can't deal with being sick and so they keep trying to get up and do something <laughs> and then they feel like crap and so they keep getting down. All of that is generating tension that's inhibiting that outward circulation. So restlessness, muscle tension, um, if their brow is all tight and furrowed, you know, that's a sign of tension. Um, agitation, uh, even, even sort of like irritability, mm-hmm. those are all signs of tension, and you would use relaxing diaphoretics for those. Okay. If the person was laying like dead weight on the bed, you wouldn't need to really focus on relaxing diaphoretics. Um, if the person was uh, sweating copiously, you know, that's showing that there's sort of like a weakness in the periphery. You wouldn't need to use relaxant diaphoretics, uh, at least in quantity. Most of the time, um, you, you have some combination of both things going on at once. And so you blend the herbs together uh, rather than just using one herb at a time. I know some people like to do that, but I think with fevers, really specifically, this is a situation where uh, sometimes you have the good combination of different properties, and it allows you to tweak and fine-tune things um, okay, and some herbs actually work on both of those uh, processes at the same time. Pretty much most of the mint family will do that. And I'll sort of talk about specific examples of each one of these categories. But that's the main thing you do. You look at the person, you say, are they, you know, deficient and pale and cool and, and you know, sweating too much and looking like dead weight? Do they need stimulation? Okay, I'll use some of these warming, stimulating herbs. Um, are they tense, restless, you know, curled up fetal, agitated? I'll use some of these relaxing herbs. Hmm. And then at the same time looking like, okay, I don't need to give someone who's, you know, beet red and, and hot, you know, who's making the whole room hot, um, a bunch of cayenne. Right, right. You know, I just don't, it, they don't need what cayenne does. Okay. So once you look at those broad things, you start to think about like, well, okay, so what are the individual plants you can pick out from? This this is, I think, with beginning herbalists, um, and I just know this from my own experience, you know, you look and you see this list of herbs um, and you say, well, how do I know which herb on this list of herbs? Right, right, exactly. So you have a book and it has herbs for fever and it has like 20 herbs and you're like, I think I have those three. Well, I'll just use that, those I'll just use those ones because those are what I have or those are what I can get or those are the ones that I'm familiar with. Right, exactly, Um, yes. We've all done that. So what you could do is you could basically break them up um, into stimulating and relaxing, okay? Mm -hmm. And I'll cover some individual examples of those. Um, Or herbs that possess both properties. Um, and then you start to think in individually with the different herbs you can use, um, which one is most appropriate. And I'll, I'll talk about how you can sort of pick and fine-tune down from there. So um, some really common stimulating herbs, and these are herbs a lot of people have in their house, you know, or they can get in any supermarket. Um, one of them would be like cayenne, okay? Um, personally, I don't use cayenne a whole lot because I am sort of constitutionally like hot and dry, and if me and cayenne are like too close together and I can smell it, mm-hmm. all my mucous membranes start to dry out and I can barely talk and I can barely breathe. And, you know, it just gets 
it agitates me too much. Um, but a lot of people will use that as a small, you know, like a spice in, into a tea blend. Right. And you just put a teeny bit of cayenne into a tea bed, and it stimulates peripheral circulation. I mean, everyone knows that who's ever eaten it. You take it, you feel flushed. Mm-hmm. So for a person that really needs some stimulation, they need to get blood out to the surface, and you know maybe to have that be more dramatic, mm-hmm. um, cayenne, a little bit of cayenne into their tea um, will do. Um, I should also say, hot teas are the best form of using diaphoretic herbs. Okay doesn't mean that tinctures don't work or that syrups don't work or that other preparations don't work. Um, but if you're going to give an herb that has a diaphoretic action, if you give it in hot water, the hot water itself also has a diaphoretic action. Hmm. So the, two, the herb and the form that you're giving it in complement each other and it makes it work better. Um, if you only had tinctures or something was just like ghastly bad tasting, and you know you didn't think that the person would drink the tea, you can give the tincture in hot water or in a cup of hot tea. But you want to use these hot fluids to, to really benefit uh, this. When we talk about yar, I'll explain the way the temperature of what you drink actually will affect the way it works on you. Oh, wow. Um, so the, the, a little bit of cayenne in something will work. And a, a really good example of uh, just a great formula, one of my favorite formulas I've ever come up with, is uh, called Cocoa Buzz, and it's basically just a hot cocoa, yeah. okay, where you mix unsweetened cocoa powder, like a spoonful of unsweetened cocoa powder, a spoonful of honey, and hot water, and you stir it. And then you have your cocoa base. And then you can mix all different kinds of things into there. You can put elderberry syrup in there. You can, um, you can make tea rather than just use water of, like, marshmallow root if they have a dry cough or something. And if someone needs that stimulating aspect, you can put some, some cayenne in there. And that seems kind of odd to people, but anyone who's ever seen the movie Chocolate, yeah. um, it was traditionally done in, in, in Mexico, in the Aztecs, they would always put peppers with their cocoa. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, gone and had certain kinds of like mole rubs on, mm-hmm. on meat that's been cooked. Mm-hmm. Cocoa and chilies, they go together really, really well. So you can actually have medicinal hot cocoa, nice. you know, as a good means of delivering this. I know other people will also make like fire cider, or they'll mix, you know, some ginger and some garlic and some cayenne and apple cider vinegar. We have that and recipe it, on Herb Mentor somewhere you can yes, search for. That's it. a great, what that is, is that's a stimulating diaphoretic mm-hmm. recipe, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, even though you're not taking it as a hot tea, anything that you put cayenne in is going to be diaphoretic. I mean, you could put cayenne in butter and rub it on your feet and it'll work as a diaphoretic. But I also use those when I kind of feel like something might be coming on and I got a little chill. Mm-hmm. You know, not right. just with fever, but... Right. Yeah, there's a, a, a broad range. Most of these plants have a broad range. And that's one of the other things that's really good about them. Okay. So, like, another stimulating diaphoretic that everyone is uh, familiar with is ginger. Okay. Oh, yeah. And here's a, where you get into fine-tuning things down. So, if you only had in your cupboard, you knew you needed this stimulating diaphoretic, and you only had cayenne or ginger in your cupboard, and you said, well, which one do I use? Well... You could say they're both stimulating diaphoretics. Cayenne is stronger than ginger. But ginger also does some things of its own. Okay, so what's uh, something that ginger is really well known for? Um, well, it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it has a lot of activity against various bacteria, microbes, and whatnot, as well as just warming and stimulating. And 
Yes, and, and for nausea. <laughs> nausea, right. Okay, right. Okay. So many things. So if, if you know you need a stimulating diaphoretic and you have these two herbs to pick from, and you say, oh, but the person has a stomach flu, they feel nauseated, you know, they're curled up fetal, um, they're feeling like they're throwing up or they are throwing up. Well, I'll use ginger rather than cayenne because ginger is more specific to what that person is going through. You know, and I would say that, um, and this applies to like morning sickness or any using ginger for any kind of nausea is um, a lot of times people will overdo it with ginger. Like they'll make ginger tea and they'll try and like chug it down. Mm-hmm. And if you've been throwing up a lot and you try and chug anything down, even if it's good for you, probably throw it up. <laughs> so what I always tell people is make ginger tea, smell it for a while. And then take a small little sip and then just put the tea back down on the nightstand. Yeah, yeah. And then take another sip and then take two sips and then take three sips and then you can sip it more regularly. But initially, let the herb like do its work really subtly before you go filling the stomach up with you know a couple ounces of, of liquid that the stomach is just too irritated to handle, even mm-hmm. if it's good for it. Okay. So sipping on ginger tea is better than trying to guzzle it if you're nauseated. Uh, another really common stimulating diaphoretic herb would be cinnamon, okay? And with cinnamon, in addition to the fact that it's another warming spice that's going to stimulate that peripheral circulation, um, it also uh, has an astringency to it, mm-hmm. okay? And the astringency can work on the lower digestive tract. So if someone has uh, a flu and a fever and they have really bad diarrhea, the cinnamon is going to be more specific to their condition, you know, so again, you have now let's say you have three herbs you're choosing from: the cayenne, the ginger, or the cinnamon. Oh well, you know, you know this child's throwing up, and that child has the runs really bad. You give the one child the ginger, you give the other child the cinnamon. Mm-hmm. Cinnamon's going to act as a astringent in the digestive tract and help to tighten everything. There's also, uh, although I don't know why there's not more attention paid to it, but there's also mucilage in the cinnamon, and so it's. It's not only astringing the tissues, but it's also coating them and soothing them. So it's very soothing and uh, really wonderful for uh, lower digestive laxness and uh, uh, diarrhea. Now, will you, thing, will you take the cinnamon like that and, and, and take cinnamon sticks like and simmer and make a decoction, or will you mix the Yeah, I, I will usually, um, if, I, if I only have the powder, hmm. I'll work with that. But usually I've got cinnamon sticks. And, or you know, chipped up cinnamon, mm-hmm. and I if it's if they're in sticks, I'll bang them up into small pieces. I'll put them on the stove. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll boil them covered, you know, to keep the volatile oils in. Because mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. if you have the the top off, it'll lose some of that. Um, and I don't really reduce it like a decoction, you know, down to half its volume. But I'll bring it to a boil and then I'll simmer it for at least 15 minutes. Um, very often I put it on the simmer and then I come back, you know, 20 minutes later and it's still simmering. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you just pour hot water on it, it's not going to extract very fully. Right, right. Okay. Um, the other thing that cinnamon will do is if someone is sweating too much in the early stages of a fever, so this is the cold and clammy that I was talking about earlier, you know, they're soaking the sheets and you put your hand on their, their head and they feel hot inside, but the heat's not getting out to their skin. Okay? Mm-hmm. So the person is um, losing fluid from the body. That's not something that you want to happen. You don't want to have to deal with dehydration. Um, so you can have them use cinnamon tea. And the sooner that you can be uh, doing that, the, the better, more effective you're going to be at like, not letting dehydration come into the picture and then have to deal with that situation. You know? 
Um, especially if someone is sweating a lot, they've got cold sweats and they've got um, uh, diarrhea or and they're throwing up because then they're losing fluids through the skin and through their bowels or through their stomach. Mm. Okay. So, and, and go figure, you know, if someone, someone can have diarrhea and uh, nausea at the same time, holding a lot of tension in the gut at the same time, the ginger and the cinnamon taste well together too. Um, oh, another one. And, uh, well, we one to think about. You know, there's so many, because you can get into um, prickly ash bark. Yeah, but what about, uh, like, is, yarrow? Does yarrow fit in that? Yeah, yarrow is an oddball, so I'm going to save that one for just a little bit. Oh, I'm going to save it for um, a bit. Okay, sorry. Yeah, so there's prickly ash bark. Prickly ash bark is kind of good for, like, uh, people. I learned this from Matt Wood. It's basically they're sort of, like, writhing around in agony. So they're really <sighs> uncomfortable, and they're having oh. pain, and you can give them prickly ash bark. Prickly ash bark is also astringent, and particularly the berries are astringent, so that will be good for, uh, like, like, the cinnamon. Um, lower bowel uh, laxness and diarrhea. Um, sassafras is another good stimulating uh, diaphoretic, and that actually helps acts as an alternative too. So it helps generally with the metabolism and, and the dealing with waste products in the body. Uh, if anyone has any kind of like septic type infections, their skin looks kind of like dark and, and you know uh, dusky, and they're having eruptive conditions. Mm-hmm. I might consider sassafras. There's and also uh, lead people to your very extensive sassafras plant walk video on herbmentor.com as well. Where you go into right. detail there and you show sassafras. Yeah, so there's black pepper, there's nutmeg, there's cloves. I mean, there's so many different areas. Like, like I said, mm-hmm. these are all of your, your common cooking spices, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have yarrow. And yarrow is sort of your oddball here because it's definitely a stimulating plant. It definitely stimulates peripheral circulation. And yet rather than, you know, immediately like you taste it and it's got that warming sensation. Mm-hmm. Now, most people, if they taste yarrow, they won't go like, oh, this plant's really cooling because it's, it doesn't taste like, say, um, cucumber. Right. Know? Cucumber, anyone will taste and they'll be like, yes, this is a cooling plant. It's more like a, ah. <laughs> yeah. The, the things that you'll notice first with yarrow is if you take a tincture of it, and taste it on your tongue, you'd be like, whoa, it's really aromatic, and it's got a strong flavor. If you make a tea with it, you're going to get more of the bitterness of it along with the aromatic. So you have the aromatic, but you get more of the bitterness that you'll taste too, and you'll just be like, you know, eek. And yarrow is a really broadly acting plant, so it, it doesn't have the overt warmth uh, that a lot of uh, the other spices have, um, and it doesn't have necessarily the specific sort of indications that the other ones have too. The yarrow you can kind of give across the board, um, but it's generally cooling. Of course, there are other properties with yarrow. Um, you know, it helps to, with excessive bleeding. Um, and, and that, I think it does by actually working on the blood to make the blood clot itself. Most herb books say that yarrow is an astringent, but when I put yarrow flowers on my tongue, uh, when I put yarrow tincture on my tongue, when I put a little bit of yarrow tea in my tongue, when I put yarrow leaves on my tongue, feeling that drying, tightening sensation that you get mm-hmm. with astringency mm-hmm. isn't something that I think is predominant in that plant. You know, it's not like if you put, uh, you know, oak tincture on your tongue or if you have a banana that's a little bit too green and you take a bite out of it and your whole mouth dries up and tightens, mm-hmm. that's astringency. And that's something that I don't taste um, in yarrow is, is it being like an overt quality of, of that plant, one of the main actions that it has. So I think that its action on bleeding is primarily 
that it's worth again clotting the blood and uh, actually directing the blood into the uh, areas around, say, like if there's an injury that you're bleeding out of, around where that injury is, rather than actually just astringing and tightening the tissue. Um, so yarrow's kind of the anomaly there. Um, yarrow tea, if you were to make just yarrow tea as a strong tea and give that all by itself, um, you'll have to keep in mind that the person that's getting that, if they're taste intolerant, they're not going to want to drink it. So it's a good plant to modify with other plants uh, if you're going to use it. Um, there's a, a lot to be said for, you know, just bucking up and saying, okay, this doesn't taste good, but I know it's going to be good for me. Um, but if you're trying to do that to kids, right? you know, and, and you give them something that tastes really, really awful, and you should generally never give your kids anything that you haven't tasted yourself or used yourself. Um, kids will pick up. If, like, if you're walking with, you know, this cup of tea towards them and you're really unsure about it, they're going to be looking and going... Mom doesn't know about that stuff she's trying to get me to drink, you know. <laughs> so um, that's really important. But if you give them something that's really bad tasting, the next time you want to give them something, they'll remember that bad tasting cup of tea, and it'll create, like, resistance there. Mm -hmm. um, but yarrow is amazingly effective. One of the, the benefits of it is it's not um, really, really specific. It'll act on a broader spectrum of people uh, and conditions. So... Some relaxing plants, okay? Mm -hmm. So for the most part with the stimulating ones, you think warming familiar spices. For the relaxing plants... And these are ones we're going to use on the hot person. Um, the ones that we're going to use on the people that are tense. Tense. You know, so they're not necessarily going to be hot too. They're going to be tense, agitated, you know, um, shivering, shuddering, uh, moving around, restless. Okay. Um, the most basic, broadly acting one that I love is elderflower. Okay. And I could go on for like <laughs> weeks. If I was an incredible poet, I would write an ode to elderflower. Um, it's such an important remedy. And with all of the attention that elderberry gets, um, elderflower does not get the attention that it, it deserves. And right. at least for me, if someone said, you know, thank God no one will ever say this, but if someone said you can only ever use either elderberry or elderflower again for the rest of your life, <laughs> I would choose elderflower. Wow. I think it's, it's a more dynamic um, herb. I can do more with it. Uh, and I think it possesses a lot of uh, qualities that make it so broadly active uh, for a number of conditions. Okay, but elderflower tea tastes really nice. It has this nice sort of like floral honey flavor to it. Um, and it's very broadly acting, so it'll work in pretty much anyone that you give it to. Um, there was a, a situation where someone that I knew uh, was sick, and I knew they had elderflower tea in their house. And I stopped in, and their husband was there, and uh, I said, you know, what are they, are they making tea? And I said, no, I haven't made tea yet. And so I, I made a big pot of uh, elderflower tea, and I said, you know, keep this on the stove, keep it warm, just keep bringing her cups up, and, you know, you can do it. I don't want to go up there and get sick. Mm -hmm. um, keep bringing her cups up and, uh, you know, have her just keep drinking it. And uh, the next day she called me up. She said, I couldn't believe how good it worked and knew that I had it in the house, but that's the stuff that we always give to the kids. And I just didn't think it would be strong enough. And so this gets into this sort of gentle, strong dynamic mm -hmm. where people think like, oh, that's a gentle herb, it's weak, and this is a strong herb, you know, it's strong. And gentle herbs aren't necessarily weak, you know. It just means that they're not going to aggravate people. They're not forceful. They're not pushy. 
Um, if you think in your life about people you know who are like gentle people, a lot of them are extremely strong people. You know, they're really, really powerful people, but they don't do it with this overt forcefulness. You know, right. like cayenne or poke root, really strong, forceful herb. Elderflower, it's just gentle. It's not weak at all in comparison. Um, it's just not that overtly uh, extroverted. Uh, yeah, it like has that, that extroverted nature. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So um, It's like an elder. Strong yeah, and gentle. Elder, it, it makes a great tea. You can give it to anyone, you know, so it'll work on... Mm-hmm. You know, even these robust construction worker type constitution people. But you can also give it to the elderly. You can also give it to infants. I mean, and I mean infants, like a month old. If they needed elderflower, I wouldn't hesitate to offer elderflower. Say, like, is a tea mixed with breast milk and given with a syringe while they're nursing, or have the mother drink lots of elderflower tea. Um, it, it, it's totally appropriate to do that. Um, elderflower will also work on like. Uh, upper respiratory congestion and lung congestion, but it, it facilitates the process and doesn't dry up secretions. You know, it keeps them in a really healthy, um, clear running state until they resolve rather than just drying up so you don't have problem with your runny nose. Uh, and it's also kind of an alternative too. You know, elderflower tea is something that you can take um, and it just makes your metabolism work better. Uh, it's a little bit you know, again, it's gentle, it's subtle. Um, sometimes I think it's, it's with the subtle herbs, it's hard to tell exactly what they do, especially if they're relaxing, because is it the elderflower that's causing the medicinal effect, or is it relaxing tension and letting the vital energy flow throughout the whole body, and you're getting the, the medicinal effect is actually the vital energy doing what it would normally do without the inhibition that the, the tension is causing. Um, another good example of a relaxing diaphoretic would be bone set, okay? Mm-hmm. And I know that uh, Paul Bergner uh, has a video on your site, and he talks about you know bone set and how important it is as an influenza remedy. And it is a spectacular plant. Um, it's so effective. And the, the specific situations that I think bone set is for, number one, it's relaxing. Um, if you have a feeling like you wake up and you're sick and you feel like someone just beat the tar out of you with a baseball bat, <laughs> your whole body just aches. Mm. That's really specific for bone set. Mm-hmm. Another thing that, that bone set um, addresses that seems really specific to it is this alternation between getting chills and getting like the hot fever, okay? Yeah. So mm-hmm. you, you feel all chilled and shivery, and so you put a blanket on top of you. And then you get all flushed and sweaty, and so you throw the blanket off of you, and then you feel all chilled again. And you keep doing this on, off again, you know, thing with the blanket. If you have that and you have the the achiness that goes, bone set is going to be very helpful for you. It's another really bitter tea. Um, When you need it, it doesn't seem to taste that bad. Sometimes I think, you know how your your taste goes off when you get sick? It's true. I think that's sort of like your body's fail-safe mechanism to be like. It is tough to take down, but this this is the plant that I've had the most uh, relationship and success with with in fevers. Personally, um, it always works wonders. It's like my the wonder herb. <laughs> yeah, and bone, bone set is a diaphoretic, and it also uh, stimulates white blood cell production mm-hmm. at the same time. So it, it really works on the entire immune system, and it works in a 
a very deep acting level. One of the conditions that people can get is uh, used to be called ague. So I suppose it's still called ague, but no one uses that word anymore. But it would be an intermittent fever. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, it still happens. I still see this. Someone will get sick. They'll have a fever thing. It'll last like three, four days, you know. And then they feel like crap. They feel really, really bad. And they get better. And then let's say like three weeks go by. And then they get sick again. And they're like, oh, this is like that same thing I had last time. And then they get better. And then they get sick again, like three or four weeks later. Mm. And they're like, you know, why am I just, like, am I not getting over this? Or am I like, catching it again? Like, what's going on here? And what it is, is it's some illnesses, the infecting uh, agent, it, it works by flaring up, making a whole bunch of copies of itself, and then, like, laying low when the immune system comes to get rid of it. And then the immune system looks around and says, oh, there's nothing really here. Oh, okay, cool. And then everything seems to be fine. And then it flares up again. Okay, so that's the way that it's adapted to live in your body and to survive your immune system because viruses and bacteria have a vital force too, you know, that, that nature is on their side too. You know, mm-hmm. nature doesn't favor us. Right. <laughs> nature wants all of her children to thrive in the world, you know. So this is this one's little adaptation. And Boneset, I think, really encourages deep immune scouring um, to go and, and deal with those. Infections. Sometimes I think, you know, like I like to uh, personify like infecting bacteria and viruses as like um, rambunctious teenagers having bonfires, mm-hmm. you know, out in the woods. And like, you know what, the police cars show up and they see the flashlights coming so the cops are coming. And like, so some of the slower kids get caught, but the clever ones <laughs> go and hide in the bushes. They wait for the flashlights to go away and they wait for the car to drive away. And then they all creep back and stoke up the fire again and start to party again. And right. when the immune system, you know, please come back, they all lay low. So this is like, it really gets in there and, and looks, you know, in the bushes and says, okay, all of you out this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's when, when, when Bone said, when it's diaphoretic actions kick in, I just personally feel like, after that, it's a really cleansing feeling. It's almost like you mm-hmm. feel a bit of cleansing. You feel a bit of reinvigoration. Like you can feel you're on the other side of this thing. You start, you know, it really feels like it's, uh, you know, done something thorough. Yeah, you know? bone set. That would be. In fact, God, isn't one of the names for bone set thorough word? Is it? <laughs> I believe one of the common names for bone set is thorough word. So that's, and, that's and, a very auspicious coincidence. <laughs> well, you know, and, and, and not to mention the near instantaneous relief of the aching when you... Right. I mean, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it can be. I would say that there have been sometimes, um, particularly if someone has, like, they feel like a semi-truck is parked on their head, <laughs> you know, and it's centered in the head. I've yeah. had that not resolved with oh, the bones. Okay, the yeah. body aches are getting better, yeah. but... The, um, the the sort of like my head is going to be crushed or explode or both at the same time um, maybe isn't going to always uh, recover but it, it is there if you read some of the old ethnobotanical accounts of like the New England and Appalachians every family going into winter would stock up on bone set make sure they had bone set around the house sure but it was so essential and I know um, Paul Bergner has has talked about you know, how you put bone set tincture into some elderberry syrup and give it like that. And I've used, definitely have used bone set tincture because even, even me with my um, fairly liberal flavor tolerance, mm-hmm. uh, there are times I'm just like, oh, I don't know if I can do a strong bone set, <laughs> you know. Um, 
but I will, rather than just put it in the syrup, I'll have it along with hot tea or mix into the hot tea uh, to, to facilitate the diaphoretic action more in, in the hot liquid. Hmm. Oh, darn it. You know, I, I have to go back for a minute. One of the things I forgot to say about yarrow, and this is kind of pertinent, is that yarrow is diaphoretic, and it's also a diuretic. Mm-hmm. And if you drink the tea hot, it favors release of fluids through the skin. And if that same cup of tea gets cold, it favors release of fluids through the kidneys. So yes. that's where the temperature of the preparation actually comes into play. Wow. Yeah, okay. Um, another herb that I think of as being really closely related to bone set, um, and also closely related to lobelia in some ways. I learned that from uh, Leslie Williams, who's an herbalist out in, where's she now? She's in Cleveland area now. Um, blue vervain, you have the same sort of hot, cold thing. You have the same sort of achiness thing. Um, a little bit better when people are holding a lot of like tension in their neck and shoulders and head, mm-hmm. so more specific to that. But in box flower essences, vervain essence is for someone who's like has a lot of very high, strong ideals that they're applying to the people around them and to themselves, and that they give people around them or themselves a hard time if they can't live up to those ideals. So these are like the really type A people mm-hmm. that when they get sick. They're like, I can't be sick. You know, they would tell anyone in a second, like, oh, you need to take care of yourself. But when they get sick, they say, I can't be sick. And they're always getting up and trying to do stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's interfering with the whole process. You know, as soon as you stand up and you're walking around, your immune system is inhibited, you know, because you're, you're saying, you're sending a signal to your body that says, I need to divert my energy outside of my body. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're laying down, you're sending the signal, like, I'm not going to do anything external, you know, work on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, the the vervain flower essence carries over into the use of the tea and it carries over into small doses of the tincture where if you have that person who's sort of like, you know, I have to be doing this or even if it's the herbalist that keeps, you know, getting up every 10 minutes to try a different herb and not really <laughs> letting anything kick in, like, Oh, well, that didn't work in 10 minutes. Maybe I'll try this. Oh, well, this didn't work in 10 minutes. Oh, maybe I should have done that. Well, maybe maybe I should have, you know, infused it longer. And the, there's that activity. There's a restlessness there. There's an agitation there. And if there's restlessness and agitation and a feeling of, like, I need to be over this now, not because I feel crappy, but because I have, you know, I have stuff to do, um, then blue vervain is going to be good for that person. That's a real good uh, blue vervain is an incredible plant, but that's a real good uh, indicator for its use in, in treating fevers. Um, another uh, one to think about would be like butterfly weed. And this would be the plant most people call um, pleurisy root or the butterfly milkweed. Okay, so it's the uh, Sclevius tuberosa. It is in the milkweed family. It doesn't have the milky sap, but it's got clear sap and it's got bright orange flowers and monarch butterflies eat it and lay their eggs on it. And um, I always just think that if I was this plant and people were deciding what to call me, I would way rather they called me butterfly weed than pleurisy root. Pleurisy root. <laughs> um, pleurisy root is good for respiratory conditions. And again, with respiratory conditions, one of the main ways that you, you address uh, what herbs you're going to use, you say, you know, damp cough, dry cough, okay? Um, with pleurisy root, the cough that a person can have that's associated with a fever that they have 
is if they cough really shallow, <coughs> it sounds dry. But if they get into like a coughing fit or when they lay down at night, mm-hmm. there's actually in the lower parts of the lungs, there's damp mucus. So if they start coughing really hard, you can hear this dank music, mucus kind of like sloshing around down there, but not it's too wet to get up all the way and expectorate. Or when they lay down, it sort of spreads out on their lungs horizontally, and then it starts coughing fits. So that's a, one of the indications I use for using pleurisy roots is you have a fever, you have this sort of dry in the upper lungs, damp in the lower lungs condition. Um, another uh, indication for it, and this goes to its use in pleurisy, is that when you have that dryness in the lungs and you take an inhalation, it creates like a little bit of friction in the pleura, and you get that stitch in your side. So you take a deep breath and you get this painful stitch in your side, or when you cough, you get this painful stitch in your lungs, and it's very specific to that condition. And then we can talk about catnip, okay? Mm-hmm. Catnip, I always wonder whether I should say, is a herb that does both stimulating and relaxing properties, but it's pr- predominantly relaxing. And it's interesting to, to contrast catnip with uh, ginger, okay? Because catnip is another herb that is good for nausea and, uh, you know, abdominal tension, okay? But ginger is the warming, stimulating uh, nausea plant catnip being the, you know, the relaxing, tension-reducing, agitation-reducing nausea plan. Um, and this one, one of the things I would say is that commercial catnip is often very poor quality. Like, really good catnip should smell a little bit skunky and minty. But it's definitely got, like, a skunkiness to it, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when, when I've seen cut and sifted catnip, it's got an aroma to it, but it doesn't have that funky, skunky scent to it, which the more of that it has, the more relaxing it's going to be, the more sedating it's going to be to agitation and restlessness. And so this would be like the person is holding a lot of tension in their abdominal organs, and they're the they're curled up fetal, you know. They, like, they can only lay in bed all curled up, and that tension is, that they're holding is inhibiting everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, good outward circulation. You know, a lot of this, you know, it seems like it's about circulation, but if you think about the Chinese concept of, you know, with the blood goes the qi or the vital energy, the circulation is really making the vital energy be able to flow all throughout the entire body. And it's the vital energy that is the, the healer. You know, the vital energy is the magic that makes your body um, all the responses work. And when the responses aren't working, it's because that there's some kind of imbalance with the way that the vital energy is, is inhibited in, in one way or another um, from carrying out its responsibilities. Okay, so then you have herbs that possess both properties. So these are like the scratch-your-head vigorously herbs or the get-a-massage right, herbs. Right. You know, they stimulate and they relax. The archetypal one here, the really broadly acting one, is mint. Okay. And this can be peppermint or spearmint. Mm-hmm. Peppermint's a little bit more stimulating. Spearmint's a little bit more relaxing. And then, you know, you have, like, common field mint and all kinds of different mints that you can put into the category. You know, catnip is a mint. Um, lemon balm is a mint. Uh, there's, you know, all the dozens and hundreds of different mints you can apply. Mm-hmm. They're all going to have some diaphoretic action. And they're all going to help with circulation. They're all going to help with tension in the digestive uh, things. So, you know, mint also helps with nausea. 
Mint also helps with abdominal cramping, so it'll also yeah. help with that fetal thing. So it makes it really broadly acting. And one of the things that mint is so wonderful for is that if you are getting into herbs or you are into herbs or you are a professional herbalist or whatever, and you get a call from someone who is not into herbs, or you can be like a professional herbalist and, and you know, well-regarded all over the place, and when someone who knows you calls you up, they're like, oh, call you know that person. They're into herbs. Mm-hmm. So you could win it like 30 years, and you're, you're like that guy in town who's into herbs. Um, and if you say something like, oh, you should take some bone set and pleurisy root and put a little bit of a you know, prickly ash in there, those plants are unfamiliar to them. They don't know what you're talking about, mm-hmm. and it all seems kind of intimidating, right? Right, right, definitely. And they don't feel good. You know, they feel sick. Or, you know, whoever is calling you is dealing with the person who's sick in a lot of cases. Um, and it's hard to get. And those are all stumbling blocks that will keep people from doing stuff, okay? Mint, if you tell someone to drink mint tea, very few people think that that's going to... They don't feel sketchy about that. Right. They feel comfortable with it because it's so familiar. Like, oh, mint tea. Well, I'm not going to do any harm with mint tea, right? And so they'll try it. And because it's so broadly acting, because it has both properties, and it, you know, what it's, it's also decongestion for upper respiratory congestion and for lung congestion. You know, it, it works in all the systems. So it's kind of um, so broadly acting that it becomes like, you know, sort of your uh, go-to herb uh, is, a, is either an adjunct to or a base in, in a lot of formulas because it'll work on so many different kinds of people and so many different people will take it without questioning it. Exactly. You know, the, a lot of the kitchen spices are like that too, but when you get into things that are called, you know, bone set or prickly ash or pleurisy root, um, people just, it's not even an unreasonable reaction. If it's something that's new to them and it's unfamiliar, they're going to not necessarily feel comfortable because they're already in a vulnerable place, you know, just by being sick. Right. You know, so having mint in there, even as a flavor that they can taste, makes them connect with something that's familiar. Um, God, mint is just such a wonderful plant. You know, Matthew Wood writes in, I think his Seven Herbs book, and he says something along the lines of like, you know, even if you only know one herb, but you know it really well, you can have an effective practice. <laughs> Limited, but still very effective. And think, if if one person only knew mint really well, how much good they could do for so many people around them. I mean, and then you think like, oh, you know, combine, let's say you know mint really well and you know chemo really well. It just keeps broadening. So it, it doesn't need to be like, you know, oh, well, I need to know all these plants, whatever. You know, I'll talk about a lot of plants here, but most people won't necessarily do themselves justice going out and getting, you know, four ounces of each one and, and, and just having them to try out when they get sick. It's like, oh, well, you know, work with the bases and then add on to that. You know, work with the foundational ones and add on to that. Um, in the mint family, there's wild bergamot, okay? Um, a lot of the Anishinaabe people or Native American people um, outside of the Anishinaabe region, which is kind of like this northeast Great Lakes area, uh, into into the Dakotas, we'll um, call the sweet leaf. And they don't mean sweet flavor. They're not talking about stevia. It's actually got a really spicy, pungent flavor, like oregano. So some of the other names for it are wild oregano or um, 
uh, it's really it's related to uh, the the bee balm, so wild bee balm, mm-hmm. Menarda fistulosa, and this is good for all the stuff that people use um, oil of oregano for. Okay, the flavors are very very similar, but rather than going to the health food store and buying buying this essential oil diluted in some olive oil from who knows where in a capsule, you can you know plant this or grow this or pick this um, on your own, and because it's a mint, you'll find one of it, you find hundreds of them, uh, and collect this and make tinctures and dry it for tea. It's really potent stuff. It's not as strong as an essential oil, but it doesn't need to be. It actually has strength in the fact that it's not that strong. But one of the <laughs> things that wild, wild bergamot does is it really sort of saturates you. Um, there's this little subterranean uh, thought I have of like a class of herbs that I call like saturating diaphoretics. And those are the herbs that when you take, you like, they, they come out your lungs you sweat them out, you pee them out, um, you know, you can, you like rub your hand on someone's forehead and smell your hand and you can, you can smell that herb. It's really going through all their tissues. And uh, wild bergamot is strongly antimicrobial and it works on yeasts, it works on funguses, it works on viruses, it works on bacteria. Wow. Um, so it's, it's very, very broadly acting and yet it's not in any way like disruptive to the gut you know it's not going to disrupt in a negative way your gut ecology but you can make a tea out of this and now this is an herb that people feel Um, one of the the more esoteric uses of it is that um, when people are really passionate about something but they have a difficult time expressing it they feel it in time but they can't bring it out of themselves Mm -hmm. and express it and project it out into the world Wild bergamot is an herb that you can take small doses of or, you know, make a flower essence out of or um, put in a little medicine bag and carry around with you or do all kinds of, you know, weird new age stuff with. Um, and it will help to facilitate that. And part of the reason it does that is because it does that physiologically too. So you have this, um, you know, it's, it's far more stimulating. It is still relaxing, but it's really overtly stimulating. You take it and you're like, wow, this is an herb that people feel and have an immediate, like, gut reaction to as soon as they taste it and um, you can uh, make tea with that make a tincture with that and add it to your tea um, I really like making tinctures and teas and combining them together uh, especially for this yeah. herb it seems very very dynamic and I, I'm not a very good at being like an either or person mm-hmm. I'm like why choose tinctures or teas when you can do both? <laughs> and you get kind of like the magic of the fresh plant with the uh, the magic of the dried plant too, you know. Um, but uh, this tea will really bring out that temperature. So it, it would also work for people who are like cold and clammy and tense, you know. So cold on the surface, hot inside, shivery and shuddery, and that heat's just not getting out, you know. And like what does heat associate with? It's associated with like passion and life and expression and something yeah. trapped inside of them it helps to project it outwards right so that is just a spectacular plant to have that's also one of those almost indestructible plants you know like you could put wild bergamot on your dashboard and like park in the grand canyon you know or death valley in the summertime and come back in a month and it would still be potent <laughs> uh it's just it, it really hangs on to its, its medicinal action even though it's an aromatic plant right um, wow, I mean, I have the reg- I have the uh, kind of garden variety bergamot, right? I mean, the but- the Minarda. You know, I I always used to think that that there was a great deal of interchangeability between right. them, mm-hmm. 
And I think one of the factors that comes into play is that people generally grow the garden variety in nice cushy soil, mm-hmm. you know, nice compost, and they put for kelp down for it to, you know, come manure, bat guano, who knows what, you know. Um, while it grows in crappy field soil, mm-hmm. and if you grow the regular red bergamot in really crappy field soil, it'll get a stronger flavor. And so I had always thought about uh, there being... You know, a lot of similarities, but you want to you want to give plants the soil that they would naturally grow in. Right. Which is the, the kind most. of gardening that Heather teaches in Village Herbalist Three, planting the cure. Yeah, yeah. She, yeah. You're you're replicating their their habitat yeah. for right. them. Because I'll tell you what, if you put me in a, a really cushy house where everyone's doing everything for me, mm-hmm. I would totally get lazy. <laughs> you know, I'd I'd like to say that I wouldn't, but I'd be like, hey, yeah, this is nice. Go but get it wouldn't be form. bad though, huh? <laughs> no. <laughs> No, I'd get big, vibrant flowers. You know? um, but I think it was, I heard this, it may come from Matt Wood through Margie Flint, I think it's in her book, where she noticed, notes that, um, that there's a difference in the, the leaves. The leaves of the red bergamot, the Anarta didima, are dry feeling. And the leaves of the wild bergamot are like oily. I mean, they feel oily, cool. like they're like someone painted them with oil and the oil soaked into that leaf and really hydrated it. So that there's a, there's a qualitative difference there. It's not just a difference of strength. You know, there's also the horse mint, the Monarda punctata, and a whole lot of native varieties. With aromatic plants, if you want to find out how strong they are, just taste them. The stronger the aromatics they have, the stronger medicinally that they're going to be uh, in terms of the actions that aromatics have, which you know, are stimulating, relaxing, um, dispersive of congestion. Uh, one of the real things I love wild bergamot for is a really deep acting steam inhalation. So you get a whole bunch of the dried leaves and flowers, you throw them in a pot of water, nice. you put the lid on it, you bring it to a boil, wow. and then you go and sit somewhere and you take the lid off and you have a towel over your head and you inhale that steam and kind of sit there with a little tent, you know, a towel tent over your head. Yes. And it really pulls up. You can use sage for that, you can use thyme for that, you can use eucalyptus, a whole bunch of different herbs, but Wild bergamot is really, it gets in deep um, into the respiratory passages and helps you pull stuff up. You know, right. it, it, it pulls stuff out of you, um, whether it's the circulation or congestion or passions. I mean, it's just a very, very dynamic plant. And it's one of the ones, you know, I could talk about that plant for a long time, and I really don't feel like I even know the tip of the iceberg about it. You know, it's one of the most important uh, plants to the indigenous peoples in the regions that it grows in. And, and no wonder, you know, I think um, Tismal Crow, who is a, a Native American herbalist, I think he's Muscogee, I'm not sure, Anishinaabe, some band of the Anishinaabe um, herbalist wrote a book, and, and he's since passed on, but he talked about how they would actually just bind the flowers or rub the flowers into people's hands and feet, and that would stimulate its, its uh, diaphoretic action of stimulating peripheral circulation there. Wow. So it's a very, very active, uh, powerful plant. And um, another one would be a real local one, and sort of like one of my favorite plants, because I've focused on this and, and sort of brought it back into use, which would be New England aster. So this is the, in the east here, it's usually the purplest, most aromatic, stickiest aster you can find growing in a field. And... Um, a tincture of that or an infusion of that. And I will say that when you pick it, it has all these beautiful purple flowers. As soon as it starts to dry, all the flowers go to seed. It'll still work uh, like that. Um, 
but is this another instance where I, I'll combine the tincture and the, the dried plant uh, in, in a tea? And that one is really specific for people who are holding tension in, in their lungs. So they have this like tight, not, you know, spasm, but tight sort of quivery tension in their lungs and they can't take deep breaths. Um, and the tension, when it gets too much, they start into a coughing fit. Um, it's very good for asthma. I use it for bronchitis. Um, it's When I teach this class, I'm always passing around tinctures and, and uh, samples of the plants as I do it. After this class, I don't think there's a single time I've taught this class where someone hasn't come up to me and been like, I want some of that New England Aster. It relaxed my lungs so much. Mm. And I know people who um, have given the tea or the tincture, and I've done this too, to someone who had asthma, and they've said that they actually needed to use their inhaler less the next day. Mm. Um, so it's a really, really wonderful plant. And it's also relaxing to the central nervous system, so that agitation thing. I and mean, the first time that, that I used it as a diaphoretic, I was really agitated, and um, I should have taken blue vervain because I'm, I've definitely got blue vervain type personality in me, you know. So I was trying a whole bunch of different things. I was like, oh, I'm going to try that new England aster. And it was, it was, that was the one thing that chilled me out and calmed me down and helped me get to sleep until I rolled over and I, I had put the cup down like on top of my chest, hmm. and it spilled all over me. <laughs> but um, that's a, such a good plant for, for uh, respiratory tension and tension in the lungs, aggravated by cold, you know. So it's a cough that gets worse when you go out in the cold. So that's a, a good example of that. Now, one of the things that you don't want to be doing when you're sick is trying to make sense of all this because you're not thinking right when you're sick, okay? Right, right, right. So what I usually advocate is you have on hand a quantity of three different tea blends or preparations. Something that's predominantly stimulating, something that's real middle of the road, and something that's predominantly relaxing. And I'll just talk about a few of my favorites. The middle of the road one, this is a really old uh, formula. It goes back to the gypsies or something. Um, it's equal parts stimulating. So you have yarrow flowers, mm -hmm. relaxing. You have elder flowers, and stimulating and relaxing. So you have mint of, of one kind or another. So yarrow flowers, elderflowers, and mint is this ageless, you know, time-honored um, cold and flu tea that you can make. It, the, the mint and the elderflowers sort of tame and temper the flavor that's a little bit intense from the yarrow, and it works great. In any uh, situation where you need something, that'll work. You know, it's got a very, very balanced action. If you need something that's more along the lines of a stimulating diaphoretic, you can use... Uh, like a fire cider type blend, okay? That'll always work, and that can be even in the vinegar. It doesn't necessarily have to be as a tea. But like, what's another real popular, um, real popular? You can go to coffee shops and find this stimulating diaphoretic, you know, herb blend that people all over the world are drinking all the time and don't think about it as being medicinal. Is a uh, chai, right? You know, chai tea. What's in chai? You know, cardamom, um, cloves, ginger, uh, cinnamon. You know, it's just, you could do without the black tea, but mm. in a pinch, it'd be okay to have black tea in there. Well, we've, got a, think, great, you know, we've got a great chai recipe without black tea <laughs> right. on Herb Mentor. Yeah, you've got that one, and I know that even Mountain Rose Herbs, they sell that, um, what's called Firefly Chai, uh -huh. with the rooibos in it, you know, right. which that is a very, very good one. Or you can just, you know, make your own. Just figure, like, okay, you know, what are the cinnamon, ginger, 
cardamom pods and cloves. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, black pepper. All those are stimulating spices. So that's going to be more stimulating. You have that on hand. Um, and then for the relaxing, there's so many different blends you can make, but one of my favorites is elderflowers and lemon balm. Mm-hmm. Lemon balm I didn't talk about, but that's another mint, primarily relaxing. And it's also very uplifting to the spirits. So when someone's sick and they just feel down, you know, kind of downtrodden, like, oh, I'm sick. I just don't want to be sick. I feel crappy. Elderflower lifts their spirits up. And rose hips, you know, rich in vitamin C, and it also adds the red into the tea blend that makes it look so nice. It's got the green and the yellow flowers and the red. Very beautiful-looking tea. And you can have that being a primarily re- relaxing one. And then if you have each one of these, you can say, like, oh, okay, I need something more stimulating, I'll take that one. I need something more relaxing, I'll take that one. I need something middle of the road, I'll take that. But you can also say, like, okay, well, I have a lot of tension, so I can do the relaxing one, elderflower, lemon balm, rose hips. But I also could use, you know, the circulation being stimulated. Well, you could put a little bit of ginger into that tea to modify it and make it more stimulating, uh, especially if there's nausea. If there's lower bowel issues, you could put some cinnamon into that tea, you know, so you can kind of tweak it to modify it. Um, to make it more stimulating just by adding some stuff into it and not necessarily having to make the whole tea from scratch. You right. just throw in a little bit of ginger root or throw in you know, a cinnamon stick into the pot while you're making it. Mm-hmm. Um, the same thing like with your middle-of-the-road tea, you need it to be a little bit more stimulating, you throw some wild bergamot in there. You know, So now it's got the mint and the wild bergamot, uh, which is more stimulating, and the elderflower and the yarrow. Um, with uh, anything you know, that's as strong as fire cider, if it's got the cayenne in there, um, it'll always be primarily stimulating. But you can throw in, you know, uh, some bone set tincture or some uh, blue vervain tincture uh, into that tea. Um, I, the, the flavors of those, like, is to throw the dried herb in to make the tea rather than using the tinctures. It seemed like they conflict too much to me. Mm-hmm. You can modify it with those tinctures and then drink that. So... You, you have a lot of uh, leeway to, like, have these teas on hand when you just need to, like, have something there and make a cup of tea. Um, as I mentioned, you want to drink the tea hot. And there's a couple ways to facilitate this because if you're sipping on the tea and having it over the course of a day rather than thinking like this, you know, we, we have this sort of stuck in a two or three times a day mentality. Mm-hmm. I'd rather have people sipping on tea throughout the course of a day and not counting like, oh, I did this cup and this cup and this cup, at, you know, four-hour intervals or five-hour intervals. Um, you can get at any thrift store a uh, crock pot, mm-hmm. you know, that you can plug in and put on the nightstand and a little ladle, and you can, you know, some people have crock pots, but I know the crock pots at thrift stores, they just, they're like peas in a pod, they're always there. <laughs> That's um, true. <laughs> and then you can, you can keep them at a heated temperature, and then just ladle a little bit out into your mug and tip on it and not have a whole cup that's getting cold and needs to be reheated because you don't need to be up and going to the stove. Another thing you can do is a thermos. Hmm. Another thing you can do are those air pots, you know, like people put um, coffee in them and you press down on the top and Hmm. the coffee comes out the little spot. Those will keep tea hot for a day. I mean, um, I had where I made tea and I put it in there like, you know, just off the boil, and it was still hot the next morning. 
And then so that those are really convenient because they're easy to move around between the couch, the bed, or wherever you're going to lay around. Um, and you can just push out a little bit, and it keeps your tea hot as you're drinking it. You don't have to do that like, oh, it kept cold. I'll have to add it back to the pot, go to the stove, and, and deal with that. The less you have to deal with in terms of uh, taking care of yourself and, uh, and sometimes moving around. you only want to drink a little bit at a time, and you don't want to. Yeah, absolutely. Time. Absolutely. You know, and it's, and it's, it's, I think it's, it's better to do that, to you know, have a few sips and then wait 20 minutes and have a few sips and wait 20 minutes, have, you know, finish off the cup. But, you know, to let your, your body direct it. Um, so uh, those are all real good ways to keep the tea hot and on hand and, and easy. Um, I really like, since we got um, AirPods, like we have these little discount stores, and I got two of them for when I did classes here, you know, I'd have people yeah. and they'd make tea and put them in there. And um, they've turned out to be so good for... Uh, for fevers and for having that, you know, you make the tea once in the morning or someone hopefully makes the tea for you once in the morning and then they give you this thing where all you have to do is lean over and press on the top of it. (laughs) They're they're not all that expensive. Uh, Especially if you go for the office. I'm really excited about that because I've been using a thermos mostly, you know, same same idea, but I like that. Right, right. And then wouldn't that filter out the herbs too in a way? Wouldn't that um, be better at? Because when I use a thermos, I always have to have a little, you know, screen in a over my teacup. Right. <laughs> you can definitely put a little um, uh, bag or muslin oh, over okay. the little. Because there's like a a long tube that goes down and it pulls off the bottom. Right. Um, so you can put a, a bag on there, but it, it still might clot. Uh, right. You know, clog. What I do is make the tea in a pot. Yeah let it infuse, and then I pour it in there while it's still yeah, hot. Yeah, that's smart right That's good. Um, and then one more class of diaphoretics is called sebaceous diaphoretics. Mm-hmm. And I first read about this in William Cook's Physiomedical Dispensatory, and he talked about them as being specific for when the sweat on the body is like an oily sweat, not a watery sweat. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, the, the three herbs that are really good for this are burdock seeds, um, sunflower seeds, and uh, the root bark of bittersweet, not bittersweet nightshade, but bittersweet vine, oh, wow. okay, which is Celastrus scandens. Okay. And um, I thought, okay, that's really interesting. And I sort of like wrapped that uh, bit of information, I clogged it in my, my brain, and I didn't necessarily really understand it. I just remembered it. And I applied it a couple times. still didn't really get it. I just you know, sort of like name association herbalism. Oh, this works. I wonder why. And then I was talking with Matt Wood one time, and he says, oh, well, you know that why that is, don't you? I said, because oil on the skin is like an insulator. So like here in northern climates, when winter comes, you know, if it was like this, if you were an indigenous person out here, you'd be rubbing bear grease on your skin to insulate you and keep you warm. Wow. If you were living in Scotland and you were going to go on a fishing boat in the ocean, you'd have this thick wool sweater and this wool hat has all this lanolin in it as an insulator. Keep you warm, right? Um, when the body is exposed to really intense cold or cold and damp, it'll secrete an oily sweat to help to hold heat in the body as an insulator. And then what these herbs do is they sort of like, after you get that person in and that oily sweat is still on the skin, it sort of flushes it off. With with more watery perspiration, uh, to to clear it and not to 
to sort of like uh, insulate when you don't need that anymore. After you get inside, you're out of those elements. So that's a that's an important consideration for most people. <coughs> the easiest uh, one to get a hold of will be the sunflower seeds. Um, burdock seeds are really really common, but to collect and process yourself a lot of burdock seeds is quite a bit of work because those fine little hairs are, are really irritating to the skin. <laughs> the first time that I did that, I just had like one debacle after another. You know, I collected a whole bunch of burrs and I put them in a coffee grinder, you know, initially. And the burrs just stuck together and the coffee, you know, grinder blade spun around and the burrs only got ground down at the bottom. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just use one of these bigger Cuisinart things. And normally I like to uh, do everything by hand, but I already tried that and I got little, you know, burr pieces in my fingers and all over the table and it was, it was just, you know, it's very, very tedious to break them open. Um, so then I put them in this, and the whole um, ball of burrs spun around the Cuisinart thing. And so then oh, from there, I nowadays if I need to process them, I'll put them in a couple shopping bags, and I'll run over them with the car back and forth oh. several <laughs> times. Basically break open the burrs, mm. and then you have to sort of sift through them. But even that's dangerous because you open that bag and all this fine little hair from the burrs goes up and if you inhale it, it's irritating if you on your skin it's irritating it's just it's a lot of work to process okay um, I, I think it's uh, Flax Family Farm sells burdock seed or maybe it's Kate Farm um, they're both in I'm pretty sure they're both in Vermont um, you can get them from them and it would be getting them right from the grower you'd get the most recent harvest from them great uh, and so that's a, a really good resource and they've got really good quality seeds um, because the other thing is, um, and this just comes along with herbalism, okay, but if you're skeeved out by breaking open a little burr and seeing that there's some little larva in, in the seeds, you know, so like three of the seeds have some little critter living in it, um, if that's going to freak you out and turn you off and you want someone else to deal with that and just send you nice clean seeds, then, then Kate Farm, I think Kate Farm, it might be Flat Family Farm, but Kate Farm would be the, the way to go for that. Uh, so what else? I don't know. Do you have any any questions? I mean, this really covers it. Yeah, it was it was a lot, and and I guess you know the thing is that people probably got at this point is the differentiation between different types of fever that you don't treat them all the same, and then when you do treat them, examples of what herbs and different ways to use them, and you went you you covered. Um, common ones that we could uh, ha probably already have in our kitchens or can easily get in a supermarket, and then a few others that if you uh, that maybe you can get to know and, and introduce one by one over time. Like maybe if you've never used bone set or something like that, you could try. You could get some and try some. Um, maybe make some tea or make some infusion um, um, before you get sick. You know, have a little experience um, so you you know what to do when when it happens. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the, I think it was the International Art Symposium, um, the, me and several other herbalists were talking, and um, somehow it came up, you know, like, does anyone use plants that they've never used themselves? And none of us had, okay? Mm. And that's really important, because I think about, when I think about herbalism, the two main things I compare it to are music, okay, mm -hmm. and then um, cooking or food. Okay, 
So imagine if someone came to you and they said, oh, I cooked a meal for you. I've read a lot about the plants and, and, <laughs> and foods that I, I prepared, but I've never tasted any of them. But I, I know what they all do and I know what's in them all. Mm-hmm. And so I think they should go together, you know, right. and that's where you come up with, with the possibility that it looks good on paper, but it, anyone who's ever ex- been exposed to the actual things you combine would be, like, oh my God, no, you know, like, like, oh, I need to create an antioxidant formula. So I know that you know, like, you know, cocoa is really rich in polyphenols and, and tomatoes are really rich in lycopene. So we'll have like, like dark chocolate ketchup together, <laughs> you know, like it could look good on paper, but the thought of the two of those things together is just wretched. You know, but the main thing, the main thing to keep in mind, because it can be confusing. Um, people always think energetics is confusing. Most people, pretty much everybody, understands energetics to a certain degree. They understand the extremes. Because you say to them, okay, um, I have two vegetables. One is a cucumber, one is a chili pepper. Which one's cold, which one's hot? Everyone says the chili pepper's hot and the cucumber's cold. Okay, it doesn't mean literally like if you stuck a thermometer in, in the chili pepper, it would be hotter than the cucumber. Mm-hmm. But it's just that sensation that you get. Um, no one comes in, you know, who lives in a, a northern climate, comes in from shuffling snow off their driveway, has been out for a long time in a blizzard, and goes like, "Ooh, I need a cucumber salad." You know, <laughs> they want some kind of, you know, you know ginger tea or, you know, um, hot cocoa or they want, uh, you know, soup or broth or stew or something warming that's going to really warm and, and, and nourish them on the inside. Just the same as, you know, no one spends the whole day, like, out in the hot sun working and says, like, you know, oh, okay, I want to have a, a bowl of, like, really, really hot chicken soup. Yeah. And a hot you cup know. of coffee. So, <laughs> right. Well, you know, people drink coffee any time of day or night, whatever the weather. So that's just that's very specific to coffee. That's um, got a good example. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I mean, coffee is, is one of those exceptions. And, and maybe, actually, it doesn't necessarily relate to um, colds and flus directly, but one of the things people get confused about, and indirectly we can relate this to what we've talked about, is, um, well, why do people eat warming spices in the tropics? You know, because that's warm and it's warm where they live. But what those herbs are doing is it's actually because of their medicinal action that they're, they're working. Um, these warming herbs have a stimulating action on the peripheral circulation. So they get blood out to the surface. Well, you, you, blood, sweat. you, 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 you cool down when you sweat. You cool down when you sweat. And also the blood goes out to the surface. Mm-hmm. It's exposed to the, the, the air around you. And it cools down and it goes back into the core of the body. Okay. So, like, right here where I'm at, you know, we just got some of our first snowfall that's sticking to the ground. It's not very much, but, you know, um, if someone's going to go and spend the day outside, you know, taking their kids sledding, Mm. they'll be like, oh, I'm going to fill up a thermos with, like, you know, ginger tea or chai or something like that. And what that's going to do is that's going to stimulate your circulation out to the periphery of your body where it's really cold outside, cool down your blood, and then your blood's going to go back into your core. Okay. It's not a good idea to do. Better when you're outside to like lots of fats and oils and lipids, mm. you know, nuts and seeds. And if you don't think that it's bad for you, um, it's a good if you're more of the nourishing traditions ilk, you know, like like bacon and sausage and mm. all that. Think about, you know, what do the Eskimos eat? They're not eating spices. They're right. eating lots of fats and saturated fats and high cholesterol foods. Mm. The oils are insulating them. And then... 
when you come in from being outside, you know, sledding all day long or going skiing or doing whatever, that's when you have the warming spices to then get the circulation back out into the um, extremities of the body. Oh, that's great. Thank That really clears it up. You know, because that, that can be confusing to people because they think warming. Um, and, and of all the dynamics within energetics, because there's about six dynamics that are, that are pretty universal. There's hot and cold. There's dry and damp. And there's, like, tension and, like, weakness or laxity, mm-hmm. okay? Hot and cold is probably the most confusing. The extremes are always pretty obvious. Like I said, you know, the chili pepper and the cucumber. Um, when you get into the middle, it becomes more confusing. And even really good herbalists don't agree about what belongs in what side or, you know, whether something's temperate or a little bit warming or, no, it's cold. Some people will say, like, oh, bitters are cold, so, you know, anything that's bitter is cold. Well, you know, calamus root is bitter. It's an aromatic stimulator. It's actually really, really warming. Um, so the, the, the middle can be confusing. But you, you learn about the edges and you sort of work your way in and fill out the fine details, just like you do with anything, you know? Right, right. Like you don't go, oh, I, don't, I just don't get this, so I'm not going to learn about it. It's like, okay, well, let me focus on the stuff that I get, and then slowly you'll pick up on the other stuff. It's like exactly. learning plants, to identify plants. Like first you walk out into the woods, you go like, oh, my God, how am I going to figure out what anything is? And then you see some plants that have like really obvious leaf shapes, and you go, oh, well, these are really easy to identify. And then because you know those plants, you start to notice like, oh, well, there's this plant that always grows around this other plant oh, now I know what this one is. And then, you know, you become more and more familiar and you, you pick it up. Huh. But for the most part, with the energetics as applied to fever, you just take that, like, step back and you look at the big picture. More stimulating, more relaxing. It's hardly ever going to be exclusively one or the other. Right. And then you, you fine-tune from there uh, with your, your more specifics. And there's so many different plants we could have talked to. We could talk about, like, you know, here we have, like, Spice bush, um, mm. you know, and collect the berries of that. Which I've put them in my elderberry syrup this year, and they're just incredible. You know, you have sweet fern up in the, the Northwoods, you know, a little bit north of here. Uh, and I'm sure that you guys have, you know, all kinds of different, you know, aromatic plants out there. And then the Southwest is laden with aromatic plants. Um, so even regionally, there's all different kinds of plants you can fit into these. William Cook's Physiomedical Dispensatory is probably the best. Um, and this is on Henriette Cress's site, mm-hmm. also on Paul Bergner's site. Um, Paul Bergner was the one who actually, I think, transcribed it and put it up online. Henriette's is, is a little bit easier to navigate than Paul's is. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're both great sources of uh, learning about this particular perspective of uh, addressing fevers and differentiating them. Well, that's great. Well, you know, Jim, thanks so much for taking your time today and sharing all this. I I just kind of le- keep letting you talk. I know we went kind of long, but I, I, I don't mind. I, I just wanted to kind of, you know, keep you going until you were, <laughs> until you were done. See, you're the kind of person that, like, if you were in, in my class, you know, the class was supposed to end at, like, <laughs> the clock, and it's, like, going on eight. And I didn't let it, you know. <laughs> yeah, if, if no one tells me, you know, I'm just like, I'll keep talking. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it was like that when I was following you around with the video camera, too, in the uh, AIHS. I was just kind of, I'll just keep taping them. I'll keep taping them. <laughs> I'll get it going every talk you do and keep taping them. <laughs> so, which, we, yeah, which, 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 by the way, people don't know on NerdMentor.com, um, they're in the video section. Um, well, probably at this point put out about 
half or a little less than half of all the ones that I have. And I, I've been putting them out every couple few weeks, and there'll be more of those. And also, if you've never, uh, don't know Jim or his background and all, there is a um, Air Mentor Radio uh, first interview we did together. You can listen to that. And um, But most of all, the very best place to get to know Jim is to go to herbcraft.org where you can, oh, well, I'll let you go, I'll go and check it out because it's a wealth of uh, articles and great information. It should be on your bookmarked short list of places where you go check things out. Anything else you want to uh, throw out there, Jim, before we get going or are you, are you talked out? Oh, well, you, you're risking getting me started <laughs> again. <laughs> Care. This is like <laughs> I, I only accidentally joined like that the Facebook thing. Yeah. And the reason I don't post much on there, and I'm like, it always cuts me off. I'm always still like typing, and it's like I've, I've reached my quota of sentences. And I, you know, they were like, oh, you should join Twitter. I'm like, Twitter won't even let you do more than like three sentences. That would letters. <laughs> yeah. I, I I don't do good in short form. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, even, I mean, I sent you the, uh, you know, some of the written material for this to look forward, you know, on my, when I do classes, you know, that are not like at a conference, but, uh, you know, my day-long six-hour uh, classes or seven-hour classes sometimes, um, you know, the handout packets are like 20 or 30 pages, and, um, you know, I, they keep kind of growing, and, you know, I'm like, oh, I want to talk about this plant. No, I can't, because then I can't cover it in the allotted time anymore, oh. but, uh well, will uh, I be able to no. follow you when you when you teach at the um, at, at the conference that Kiva Rose is putting together down in uh, in September? Uh, will you be doing herb walks? And even though it's a, are you okay in the Southwest? <laughs> um, I'm I'm not scheduled to do any herb walks out there um, simply because I I well Kiva told me she'd be really shocked if I knew anything, and I looked at the pictures of where it's going to be, and it's all brown. Uh-huh. Well, I'm and gonna so follow. I'm, I'm, I hope Kiva does some then, because I'm gonna follow her around with the camera. And, yeah, I'm I'm tempted to agree with her. Although, what I am gonna do is I'm gonna like look for weeds and stuff, mm. um, so that when she does it, uh, has a second conference, I can say like, oh, I saw weeds. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's an herbalist in Detroit named uh, Gary Wantaja, or maybe Wantaja. I guess I, I've known him for years. I should know how to say his last name, but um, he's got a place called Nature's Products, and he told me how he went to. Uh, uh, I think Peru, and he said it was, it was really amazing. And he's a more like even-keeled guy than I am. He says, really amazing. You'd go out into the, the rainforest, and you could walk for a half hour and not see the same plant twice. But when you got back into the village, among all the houses and dwellings, you'd see dandelion and yellow dock and plantain, uh-huh. you know, all these really common, you know, like these plants of of of, of people, you know, their habitat is where people are, not, you know, a certain country. Right, 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 right. So if I can find stuff like that there, then I will <laughs> I will uh, interject myself. Actually, I, this will be the first time I've ever been to a conference I haven't done walks. I don't know what I'll do with myself. <laughs> I have to try not to butt in what other people are doing there. I'm sure you'll find something to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Kifa put me on the list. I was like, well, maybe I'll just do... Uh, teach um, how to make uh, websites for herbalists. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> if I'm going to the Southwest, I'm going to play it safe. <laughs> I hope they've got Wi-Fi. 
<laughs> if not, I'll make it up. <laughs> All right. Well, okay, Jim. Well, it's a, I, um, I really appreciate it, uh, like I said, and um, I look forward to having you again. And anytime you just feel the urge to share something sporadically, um, through our mentor radio, you know, all you got to do is email me and I'll, I'll be here. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You know, you get one of these nights when I'm in a manic ma- mode and I'll call up. Actually, I could call up cause it'd be late here and not too late for you. Exactly. Anytime. <laughs> okay, great. Well, I'll talk to you later, Jim. Yeah. Have a beautiful day. Bye. Herb Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com is a production of LearningHerbs.com. Visit LearningHerbs.com for free herbal lessons, including Herb Mentor News, Home Remedy Secrets, and Supermarket Herbalism. You'll also find the Herbal Medicine Making Kit and our board game Wildcraft. Herb Mentor Radio. Copyright LearningHerbs.com. All rights reserved. Thanks so much for listening.